0: This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller and Danny Nelson as they seize the world of crypto. Hello, and welcome to Carpe Consensus. I'm your host, Danny Nelson. Ben Schiller is out this week, so I'm anchoring the show with a couple of guests. We're going to talk about the latest and greatest in the crypto world. We're going to start off with inside the desk. Inside the desk today, I've got Margot Nykirk. She's one of our excellent tech and protocols reporters at Coindesk. Margo, I hear you've got a story for us that gets into decentralization, base, Coinbase, all this good stuff. What do you got?
2: Thanks, Danny. Thanks for having me here today. So I recently wrote a story about Coinbase. They came out with their principles known as the base neutrality principles, which basically is like a framework for how Coinbase's layer two base is going to tackle, tackle decentralization and neutrality when it comes to the order of transactions. And basically, like just to give a high-level overview of what it is, they're drawing their principles off of optimism's law of chains, which is basically like a set of principles aimed at uniting optimism's chain under one framework and one vision, as they like to say, called the super chain. The law of chains basically sort of sets up guidelines for different Optimism's governance groups to head towards that. And since Base is using the OP stack, which is Optimism's technology, uh, that's where they've sort of drawn this inspiration from. I think this is very interesting because it sort of shows Coinbase's delicate dance when it comes to trying to reap the benefits from its associated network, but also not exude too much control over the layer two.
0: So Margot, let's talk tech for a second. What is Coinbase's actual role in keeping Base running?
2: Yeah. So that's a really good question. For those who don't know, when you're transacting on an L2, that data always gets compressed and sent to an L1. In this case, the L1 is Ethereum. And Coinbase plays a role in this because they're running a sequencer, which is basically that node or the computer basically that sends that transaction data to the L1. As part of that, a sequencer is able to get some revenue based off of the user's transaction fees. The more users there are on base, the more profits Coinbase is able to generate from that. And so this has brought sort of into, into question what, what's the fine balance for Coinbase in terms of how much revenue it's able to make off of this while also trying to stay a little bit away from this project as they pivot towards decentralization. But yeah, this is the sequencer is a big component in this path towards, I keep using the word decentralization, whatever.
0: Well, we can talk more about decentralization because. I'm wondering how seriously one should take a company like Coinbase saying at all that they're ever trying to be decentralized. Like Coinbase is the main custodian provider for all these Bitcoin ETF applications, which we talk about a different part of today's episode. It's also a big part of the USDC stablecoin. It's also the biggest US exchange. It also has a derivatives market. It also has its own blockchain. If you want to think about crypto companies in terms of power, and if you think about it in terms of power, you also think in terms of centralization. Coinbase is a power center. So, like, how how can a company like that ever be saying, "Well, we are this giant with all these different things," and you, by the way, you should use our chain, but we're going to make it decentralized. Like, that does, does that make any sense? How does that work?
2: Yeah, no that that is what we're trying to make sense of. Because on the one hand, like you said, it is a very centralized entity, and this is another way for them. To generate profits. And also, who knows what, especially around the sequencing, whether, you know, how that falls into legal battles right now with the different products that they offer. It's not necessarily a product that they're offering, but it is another way of generating some kind of revenue. On top of that, too, from what I've heard from, from the base team itself, it's always been part of their roadmap to participate in decentralization and the protocols teams at Coinbase has participated in, I can only speak for the Ethereum ecosystem because that's what I cover, but they have participated in various EIPs and important upgrades to scale Ethereum. So they are involved in those conversations and it is sort of part of the roadmap, but this is sort of a, like an oxymoron what's going on right now. So, so yeah, those, those are great points.
0: So Margot, why are we talking about this right now?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think well, for starters, Coinbase has been a lot in the news lately with <laughs> a lot of it's, its legal battles in the U.S., but and also just how gigantic it is in the crypto ecosystem. But also, uh, this hasn't been done before, where a publicly traded company is participating in creating a layer two. There are companies out there that support or nonprofits, foundations, I should say, that support layer twos and. You know, we can critique those as well. They each have a different degree of how involved they are in those layer twos versus not. But this is, I think because Coinbase is such a big name, this has drawn a lot of attention because it's put into question like what, how much power can a centralized company have over a technology that's supposed to be accessible and run by the people.
0: Mm -hmm. And a little sideshow that gets in my mind whenever we think about sequencers over on Arbitrum, the Arbitrum Foundation or whatever they call it. Runs the sequencer, mm-hmm. famously or infamously, in early June, the chain just seemed to stop working. And the reason why it stopped working mm-hmm. was someone at Arbitrum forgot to put more ETH in the sequencer, so it just ran out of money to operate. Uh, what, what, what do you think of that? Like, what does what does that tell us about how Coinbase might go about its own experiment here?
2: Yeah, so this is part of like a bigger tech story that we at the tech team are, are working on. Sequencers are a centralized point of failure, and that's been known. It's, and Layer 2 companies, foundations are working towards figuring out how to decentralize the sequencers so that there aren't any more instances like this, like, like at the Arbitrum Foundation, where, you know, because it's run out of, out of ETH, it stops posting the data back to the L1. And so it's not high right now on the priority list for uh, layer twos to decentralize this. Security is probably more important, but this, this again, like, you know, this could happen to Coinbase as well, right? Some guy who is running the sequencer or the node is running the sequencer and they run out of ETH and it's like low on their priority list, like then the data that fails to be posted to the, to the L1. So yeah, this could happen.
0: Thanks, Margo. We will jump over to another part of the crypto universe now and be back with more very soon
2: thanks Danny
0: joining me this week is Ryan Lovar wisdomtree's chief legal officer and the head of business and legal affairs for digital assets Ryan welcome to the show what's on your mind right now
1: great thanks for having me well uh, certainly uh, follow uh, marketplace and regulatory developments you know especially the regulatory side as, as wisdom trees chief legal officer focused on digital asset and blockchain initiatives and you know, we have some breaking news in that, in the Grayscale versus SEC decision, Grayscale receiving a court victory, and that was certainly a large victory, I think, for Grayscale in terms of we haven't seen, you know, that type of decision with the court saying that a uh, SEC decision was arbitrary and capricious in, in some time. It doesn't happen every day, certainly.
0: Yeah, just for our listeners, what we're talking about here is today we're recording on Tuesday, August 29th. And the big news of the day is that Grayscale has scored a pretty major court victory in convincing judges to side with it in forcing the SEC to review its rejection of the ETF. Now that's a whole lot of mumbo jumbo, but you can distill it down to the idea that the SEC is not allowed to just slap away Grayscale's efforts to issue a Bitcoin ETF. They have to review it more seriously. And that is in my mind a pretty significant victory and also The second consecutive major court loss for Gary Gensler's SEC, now a couple of weeks ago, about maybe a month or two, there was the Ripple case, which may not survive a second round of scrutiny in the courts. However, at least for the time being, the SEC has been told that it did not go after Ripple in the right way. And it also is being told here that it can't go after Grayscale in this way. So Ryan, from your legal point of view within WisdomTree, what are you to make of these failures by the SEC in the courts?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, look, the, um, we, we work closely with the SEC on a number of fronts. So we're separately closely watching, you know, SEC decisions as they're occurring. Uh, yeah, I think when we speak about the, the ripple decision, what that was focused on, and it's interesting because it goes back you know, almost 80 plus years to this Howey decision, uh, which was, you know, our orange groves and the sale of those and, and the related, Cultivation and and is that an investment contract, a type of security? And ultimately, you know, the SECs over the years provided pronouncements or otherwise had enforcement actions that, you know, many would say has broadened what might be considered an investment contract and and essentially saying that all sort of digital assets or cryptocurrencies, at least nearly all. And the SEC eyes were securities, these investment contracts. But here the judge said, well, wait, it really is facts and circumstances. And so it really does, that, that decision really did change sort of the landscape in terms of how, you know, the SEC might be able to move forward. Now, as you noted, it was one district court decision, albeit important one in, um, in New York that the SEC has appealed. So uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how that progresses. But that one on the heels now of Grayscale, which I guess just to step back, you know, really, there's been, you know, ETF providers seeking to have a spot Bitcoin ETF for 10 plus years. And so there's this process where the listing exchange essentially needs to seek a special application from the SEC. And here the SEC has been continually rejecting those applications. And ultimately, the court said uh, that these rejections, and in particular, this one was arbitrary and capricious. And as you you noted at the outset, SEC, go back and take a look at that.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, I have to say, from my point of view, I've read a lot about these Bitcoin ETFs and the Bitcoin futures ETFs that have been more successful in getting passed. And personally, I can't understand what the SEC's deal is like Bitcoin futures product is fundamentally based on the price of bitcoin which the sec in the non-futures etfs applications says is subject to market manipulation well if that's true why is the bitcoin futures market not is it really just because it's being monitored by the cftc with the futures market well those contracts are still based on the price of bitcoin so i, I don't understand that aspect of their reasoning. And I also don't understand, under the the guise of investor protection or doing what's best for investors, if you have a choice between the base product of a Bitcoin-owning ETF or a Bitcoin futures-owning ETF, well, just a straight-up Bitcoin ETF is going to be a lot more efficient, a lot fewer hidden fees, a lot better in terms of just outright exposure for its owners. So what's your perspective on the two types of Bitcoin ETFs here?
1: Yeah, I mean, you make some you make some great points there. Uh, You know, really on that on the first one in terms of that price, I, I think that's become a key a key piece, and it is really one of the foundational linchpins of this decision. Is that you know that price that is being determined, but that same price, you know, the Bitcoin ETF applicants were saying, you know, we're we're using fundamentally the same price source or something that's materially the same. How can there be fraud and potential for manipulation in one and not the other? Uh, and ultimately, you know, that's what this court decision boiled down to is to say, and the SEC said, well, there aren't these surveillance sharing agreements in place. And, and what do they mean by that? Well, the exchanges will get data from other data sources, uh, you know, in this case, from other regulated markets. Uh, and the SEC said, it seemed to be OK for those future ETFs where there's data coming in from the CME, but not for the Bitcoin ETFs because they're trading spot. But if you're saying those prices are highly correlated, it becomes very difficult. And ultimately, that's what the, the court said is, you know, it really seemed to be the reasoning behind it seemed to be arbitrary. But, but I think going back to the broader point is, is incredibly important. Just going back from an investor perspective. Protection standpoint and saying, you know, why not have this access point in an ETF in a vehicle that's well known, that's been through tough, turbulent times in many markets in many asset classes, including alternative asset classes that you know advisors use with respect to their clients, that individuals use to now assemble portfolios on a daily basis. Why doesn't that lend itself to investor protection? which is you know, certainly something that I think's been hard to, to reconcile with these disapprovals you know, as, we, as we sit here today.
0: So Ryan, you mentioned at the top of the show or at the top of our interview that you and Wisdom Tree are talking with regulators, speaking with the SEC. How do you make sure that Wisdom Tree and its endeavors don't end up in the arbitrary and capricious rejection pile?
1: Well, you know, it, it's tough. I mean, it's a dialogue, you know, it's um, that that's ultimately what it boils down to is, you know, having that having that dialogue you know, with the FCC or any regulator and being engaged, being uh, transparent in, in what you're doing. But at the end of the day, uh, there can be differences between those that are trying to issue product and, and trying to really ultimately do it in a responsible way and the regulatory view. You know, and here we've seen those rejections time and again. You know, I think what will be interesting is, you know, what, what will the next step be? So I think if we step back and sort of think about what ultimately did the court say, you know, they really came to the conclusion and said the SEC failed to adequately explain why it approved the listing of these Bitcoin futures exchange-traded products, and, and not Bitcoin uh, exchange-traded products. So that was the arbitrary and capricious point that a regulator can't be acting under. But the question is, is, the FCC, are they armed with now being able to overcome that? Can they make the explanation that would satisfy a court to not then be arbitrary? There's no sort of specific timeline as to when the SEC needs to act. I think Will the SEC appeal this decision? Hard to say. It seems to me uh, that it revolves more around the SEC's decision-making as opposed to a point of law, which rather than appeal, the SEC will, I think, probably reissue a decision on this listing application possibly put more detail in it to try to address the court's concerns. And then we'll see where that lands us. It may very well land grayscale going back to the court and saying this didn't, this didn't do anything. You know, it's still arbitrary. But the other thing too is that there's a number of other applications that are due for SEC decision before the SEC needs to take action here. And all of the other denials from all the other ETF providers have said have been on the same basis that a court just said was arbitrary and capricious, and some of those are due to be, to be coming in the next uh, week or two. I think we have a lot to, lot to learn, and we'll see in the next uh, coming week to, to 60 days.
0: Now, Wisdom Tree, if I understand correctly, has its own application out there. Where in the pipeline is that, where in the, the bureaucratic process?
1: Yeah, so uh, I can't get too much into our own application, but you know, certainly public information that, uh, you know, we're due for a decision, like I just mentioned, along with another number of other applicants. So, you know, right in the middle of, of this. So we're, you know, closely paying attention and due to, due to hear a decision soon, shortly as well.
0: Now, between all these different applications, do the details change materially from one to the next in a way that might like result in a different outcome for any individual filing?
1: Yeah, I mean the the details can matter certainly. Uh the great question. Uh so there can be differences in the way the product is potentially structured, or for instance, these products don't have the protections of the Investment Company Act of nineteen forty, which most ETFs do, uh, but, but ETFs that invest in commodities don't come under that separate regulatory regime. That's for ETFs that invest primarily in securities. So, you know, one way to differentiate is to potentially voluntarily add those types of protections around different aspects of that regulatory regime or differentiating by the custodian that's going to hold the Bitcoin. Or, you know, what is the price source? I think if we see some rejections, It'll likely be on, on kind of these broader points. But, you know, we could see approvals based on certainly individual different differences in the applications.
0: Mm-hmm. With Wisdom Tree's crypto ambitions, is the Bitcoin ETF the only thing that it's thinking about right now?
1: Um, no, Matt, thank, thank you for asking. No, we're focused on a number of areas. So I guess if we think about, Sort of two areas. One is Bitcoin, other digital assets, and then the underlying technology of blockchain. Uh, so when Wisdom Tree started looking into this area, certainly our initial focus was on, you know, those digital assets, Bitcoin, Ether, and the like. So we started that down that journey probably five plus years ago to say, can we provide a uh, responsibly operationally responsible exchange traded fund, exchange traded product that is providing access or is holding Bitcoin or other digital assets. And so, you know, frequently we have a business in Europe. We also have the same one in the U.S. So often we'll, you know, roll out products around the same time. Uh, I think it's interesting. It also shows kind of the regulatory differences among the jurisdictions where we did that, uh, you know, with aspirations, both in Europe and the U.S. Uh, we now have product in Europe. So we have exchange traded funds that hold Bitcoin, exchange traded funds that hold Ether. So we've been very certainly, uh, you know, gained a lot of experience from those, you know, had a good amount of traction, you know, enrolling those out. And we'll see if we can then also, you know, leverage that experience, hopefully ultimately in the U.S. But we've been separately focused on Sort of then the technology behind it, so blockchain technology. So we've really focused on that technology to build a, a really something new, uh, and that's what we call Wisdom Tree Prime, which is a personal financial mobile application where we're seeking to merge saving, spending, and investing into one experience, providing access to digital assets like Bitcoin and Ether but also blockchain and blockchain or tokenized assets. So gold where the certificate of title is recorded on the blockchain. So by way of example, the power of the blockchain is that really a part of it is that transparency, but also that settlement feature. And I think the settlement feature and that transparency and settlement is really what we're focused on. And then, and then just a curated suite of assets there Uh, which include SEC-approved what we call digital funds, which are very traditional mutual funds investing in traditional assets, treasuries, and equities that also have a record on the blockchain so that through one integrated wallet, investors or consumers can see their holdings of whether it's Bitcoin or gold or a a fund uh, all in one place and interact. So, you know, partially with a pivot, Uh, to allow Bitcoin access to to retail in a way that, you know, not currently allowed in the U.S. through Bitcoin, but certainly consumers can now do it that way through this app with other very traditional assets.
0: Now, Ron, your point about the gold got me thinking about this term that I've been hearing, a resurgence of real-world assets. Now, when I first became a crypto reporter in September 2019, I was writing a whole bunch of things like, Walmart putting lettuce on the blockchain, all these shipping companies using blockchain. One other aspect that I heard was let's tokenize assets. Now, that narrative died away, or maybe didn't die away, but became a lesser point for the next two or three years. And now it's making a comeback in this bear market where a lot of different voices are talking about real world assets and putting assets on the chain, whether it's uranium or I don't know, probably lettuce somewhere, gold certainly. There's this drive to tokenize things and put them on chain is wisdom tree playing in that ballpark
2: yeah
1: absolutely i mean i think you you reference gold again i mean that that is a uh really prime example of exactly that real world asset tokenization you know that i have this you know in our case a Stellar based token but it could be ethereum it could be other blockchains that you know is providing a record of that asset ownership that is ultimately, you know, transparent, recorded on the immutable blockchain, but then also, uh, you know, has the features and functionality of a standardization through the blockchain. You know, it just amazes me. You know, when you think of stocks, I buy a stock today. I actually don't have that until two days later, T plus two settlement. And it's true. If I were to buy a gold ETP, it's the same thing. I buy it, but I really don't have those shares until two days later. But that settlement is is still on on that basis. Here, that gold can be settled through the blockchain in in literally a matter of seconds. You know, that's very powerful. and can have very powerful, broad implication when you think that amongst persons, amongst counterparties, that a lot of that counterparty settlement risk essentially can go away when you're settling that quickly. You're seeing a lot of research reports, a lot of financial players. Coming into the marketplace, you know, we thankfully started focusing on it a number of years ago, and now have these real-world assets in the marketplace available. Uh, I see it in my wallet with my digital gold, with my Bitcoin or my Ether, if I so choose, and I can really start seeing these benefits. To your point, it sort of it seemed to not not receive a lot of attention, but we're really seeing it, and uh, you know, really, really poised to try to continue to expand upon that in ways that really can enhance the functionality to the our blockchain in terms of things like peer to peer and otherwise. I think we'll see more and more of that in the moments and times to
0: come. Great, well, thank you so much for joining us on the show, Ryan. We'll definitely be looking forward to seeing what happens with Wizardry's application as all the other ones too. Great,
1: thank you so much for having me today. It was a great discussion. Uh, love talking all these topics and uh, really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Daniel.
0: So you're on an icebreaker, driving through the watery deep, looking for a place, for a cave, for a dungeon, for Danny's dungeon. Welcome to Danny's dungeon, the place where Danny talks about DAOs, his favorite, least favorite thing to love to hate in all of crypto. Margo, this week in Danny's dungeon, we're going to be talking about Wintermute.
2: Oh, okay. Okay, cool.
0: So in this story, you've got two main characters. You've got Wintermute, this big market maker that has a lot of money, trying to make more money with that money, and you've got Yearn Finance and the voters behind Yearn Finance who are looking out for this protocol that gives people a way to earn yield money on their crypto tokens. So, Margo, in this story, these two players have come to a head because Wintermute is asking Yearn Finance to basically just give it two million dollars worth of their tokens, essentially for free, in a, a very unfavorable loan. And they're just saying, okay, you're going to give us this money, and you're going to trust us because we're big, and we're not going to blow up, and therefore give us the money. And the voters say, no, th- that we don't want to do that. That's a terrible deal. We've seen FTX blow up, Alameda blow up, Celsius blow up. We can't just trust you because you're big. That- there's no such thing as too big to fail. So, Margot, what do you think of like these claims by Wintermute, these assertions that they're deserving of this really inferior loan, inferior for urine, that is, because they're so big and powerful.
2: I mean, I think it's interesting that in the first place, they're going to ask for that kind of loan. I mean, you probably cover this stuff more than I do, but that seems like a pretty big ask from the community. I think highlights sort of the drama that you were getting at. Danny, can you explain to me why this is such a big deal? Like, why is this so outrageous?
0: I mean, I don't know if I'd use the word outrageous, but it's definitely a little concerning just to see how brazen Wintermute is being in asking for what's essentially free money, right? Like they're saying, we're a big deal and you should trust us because we're a big deal. And don't, don't need to think about those other instances when other companies that said, trust me, weren't really good for the money. And it gets to this theme of being too big to fail that I think keeps coming up in crypto.
2: So you're mentioning that there's been these other instances where other companies have asked for this kind of of money. Can you sort of get into like other things that you've covered sort of in the similar arena and how that sort of differs from this moment?
0: Well, it's, it's not really a specific instance of like, oh, well, Widgetmute is asking for a $2 million loan here. And that's like this other time where FTX asked for it. It's more like FTX and Celsius and BlockFi presented themselves as these really important companies, in Genesis too, presented themselves as these really important companies that people could trust. And because of that perception, people in other crypto companies and projects were willing to enter into different agreements with them, even if it was just giving them the money to custody, that they might not have otherwise done. And then when those companies blew up, those people who believed that, the, that those companies were good for it, were proven otherwise. So if you if you look over there you have those big macro narratives and then you whittle it down to this little instance where Wintermute is asking one tiny little protocol which has a 300 million TVL, not that big in DeFi terms, to give it money because why not? I think that if we're looking for this industry to evolve, then it's troubling to see any company be so brazen as to just ask for this on these terms.
2: So, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like there is some like leftover PTSD from the last year when it comes to these loans and uh, asking the community to vote for this sort of like revives that kind of nervousness around that. Is that what you're basically saying?
0: I think that's certainly a a good way of putting it.
2: So I, I know you talk a lot about decentralization on here, but it seems like in this instance that the community was given a certain option and they voted against that. So isn't this, doesn't this show that decentralization is, is really like in full force here and that's ultimately like a good thing coming out of this story?
0: Well, you're right in that a lot of times I'm talking about how decentralization just outright fails. A lot of times I think there are protocols that just push things through under the guise of decentralization. And here you have an outside entity asking for something to happen and the community saying, no, we don't want that to happen. But there are other aspects that I would caution against getting too excited about. For example, there are about 30,000 or 300,000, some really big number of yearn tokens out there that are eligible for voting. And in this vote, only about 200 to 300 of them participated. That's a really, really bad participation rate. And it's indicative of just this apathy where most people can't bring themselves to care. So, you know, if I, I don't know, right.
2: Right. So, and then I, I guess I want, I wanted to ask then why was the particip like, do you know why the participation rate was so low in this vote?
0: Well, it's not just this vote. It's all these votes that happen in urine and not, it's not only a urine problem. This happens across a lot of protocols. I guess I'd have to say, I think it's because of the people who buy in just don't really care about that aspect of their investment. They don't really have any thought to the notion of, well, I'm buying not only into an asset that might accrue value over time, but that gives me governance powers. That's not an important detail to them. And it's just so funny because it might not be an important detail to them, but it's this critical narrative that every one of these assets purports to have. These assets sell themselves as being governance tokens that give people power over protocols. But these people that buy these governance tokens don't bother to use them as protocol votes.
2: So then what's the point of having a governance token then? Like if it's just sitting there and they're not participating in that system?
0: I don't know. I think, you know, I'm very cynical in the dungeon. I'm not going to stop being cynical here. I just question the thought process that goes into creating governance tokens, because if you create this thing and you know through inference that most of the time, most people aren't going to care. And then you earmark a lot for yourself and your friends, people who you know will care. You're almost intentionally creating a system whereby power will, whether or not you mean for it to, accumulate around the insiders. Margot, I'm going to take my cynicism about the folly of decentralized governance and throw it back to you. On the tech side of things, how do you feel about decentralization?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's, it's, like a, it's a constant goal that I think a lot of teams are, are working towards with tech. I'm a little less cynical with it because I see it on the tech side happening more. Like that's always ingrained sort of in the code and the upgrades that they're creating. How, how are these teams creating a technology in which it can be decentralized? Even with when we were just talking about base, there is a goal they're working towards. And I think there are a lot of questions whether it's actually they're actually going to achieve this, but at least like their efforts and steps being taken. So I don't know, maybe I'm a little bit more of an optimist than, than you are. Yeah, I think it's a big question that is on the mind of developers, you know, each and every day when they when they show up to do their coding.
0: And that's the show. Thanks for listening. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We always love to hear the feedback. Once again, this has been Danny Nelson. You've been listening to Carpe Consensus. Carpe
2: Consensus is a Coindesk production. Executive produced by Jared Schwartz and produced and
0: edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com. Subject line, Carpe Consensus.
2: Thanks for listening and see you next week.
1: Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.